0: are dim, the evening draws on apace, you're cuddled up with your favorite book, your favorite beverage, and now it's time to visit the Projectionists Lending Library with your hosts Eric Klein and Nathaniel Beath. Join us, won't you? which I see the world in close-up, storing away for my business and your pleasure the experience and excitement of meeting people, all kinds of people, people like Sally Bow. So now we're moving on to the, to the movies. Yes. Um, so what movies
1: are we talking about? Okay, so there have been two official adaptations of the Berlin stories. There's another one that's kind of an unofficial adaptation, and that's the 2011 movie Christopher and His Kind which is purportedly based on the book, Christopher and His Kind. But if you watch it, they they lift whole scenes from the Berlin stories. And Mr. Norris, the original of Mr. Norris is in there. It's the closest we're ever, we've ever gotten to an adaptation of Mr. Norris Changes Trains. Fascinating. I haven't seen um, that. It's it's okay. It's got uh, Matt Smith, who I, I know as the doctor, doctor who? from yeah. Doctor Who. Yeah. And he basically plays Christopher Isherwood as if he were Doctor Who, so that's that. It, it's interesting, but yeah, it it hits most of the same basic plot beats as both I Am Camera and Cabaret, but it also adds in two of Isherwood's affairs: the one with Otto and the one with Heinz. Okay. So yeah, there have been two official adaptations. One of them is called I Am a Camera, uh, from 1955-56. And the other is Cabaret from 1972. So we're going to talk about both of these. Mm-hmm. And, you know, we said we're not going to talk about necessarily or only, oh, I liked it or I didn't like it. But I think that whether we like something or dislike something is the beginning of wisdom, not its end. <laughs> so let's start with I Am a Camera. What was, your, what was your take on I Am a Camera? I was so fucking bored. Really? I was
2: so bored. No, granted, I watched this last night. It's on
1: YouTube and like potato it's, vision.
2: Yeah, the like the resolution isn't great. But it was just like, as I watched it, I'm like, yeah, I guess they have like the kind of the general plot points from the book. But the entire like life was stripped out of it. Like it was just hmm. so pointless i don't know you like were... the the entire like kind of tone and mood and like how we talked about like with berlin stories that like the centrality of rising fascism or rising political violence is not as present as it is in mr norris changes trains that it's on the mm-hmm. periphery it's still always there and it's there tonally when you are reading the different characters and he's kind of emphasizing everyone's duplicity and everything, you still have a sense of this context, even if it's not quite as front and center as it is in Mr. Norris. And my feeling and I Am a Camera that this is like almost gone, like this feeling mm-hmm. of kind of dread, this feeling of cultural unease. It doesn't seem to at least at least in my opinion when watching it, I would love to hear what you thought. And and to me that made it very boring. There were definitely some funny moments and I can talk about them. Like there was one moment where Sally Bowles is uh who I, I don't remember the actress playing her in this. Julie Harris. Okay. Yeah. So okay, so Julie Harris as Sally Bowles, there's a moment where she's um having a meltdown or whatever. And I think Isherwood is in the room with her, but she throws a shoe out the window. Mm-hmm. And then um they continue yelling at each other, and then she throws a second shoe. And then the like just like out the window. off in the distance, you can just hear like
1: ow <laughs>
2: <laughs> like, like i left yeah. my ass off like there's little moments like that in the movie where it's just like okay this is this is funny like and you you talked about like the slapsticks kind of stuff that happens sometimes uh-huh. in it. so there is humor in it but on the whole i thought it was just kind of lifeless and did not carry the weight of either the books or ultimately cabaret
1: yeah, that seems to be the way that that most people take it. I referred a lot to Keith Garabian's book The Making of Cabaret, and Garabian is is not at all impressed with this movie and basically says that it fails to capture the spirit of the original book. Yeah. The this was it's based on a stage play and this was the second attempt to make a uh, play out of specifically the sally bowles story there had been another attempt by let me see speed lampkin who is a gay american novelist friend of isherwood's there was an attempt to make a script outline it was called sally bowles and i don't think isherwood necessarily liked it but the people who really didn't like it was his friend Doty smith and her husband and so They went to John Van Druten, who was a well-regarded playwright. He wrote I Remember Mama and Bell Book and Candle, and they said to him, well, why don't you try to make a play out of this? And so he did. The play premiered on Broadway, and it was very successful, and later was made into a made into the film but there were a couple of differences between the stage play and the book one of the differences is that Sally's mother is a character she apparently shows up at one point oh man yeah and it's, it's apparently pretty melodramatic and over the top. Apparently, the play in general is pretty melodramatic. It also introduces a sequence which is going to be important in every single adaptation of Goodbye to Berlin from here on out, including Christopher and His Kind. It introduces a physical confrontation with Nazis. In the book, although Isherwood certainly doesn't approve of the Nazis, he doesn't actually attack any of them. Right, But in the stage play, I Am a Camera, he does get in a fistfight with the Nazis, and this is going to be an important element of every single adaptation going forward. That's interesting, and that's interesting in the way that we
2: may remember the movie as a more explicitly anti-fascist work than it actually was. Than it actually was.
1: Yes. The stage play and later the movie also made Isherwood's landlady an anti Semite because he wanted to give the Isherwood character the chance to openly attack nazism and that's bullshit like why would you show her like that like
2: she's fucking great
1: isherwood hated this and he actually insisted that the landlady's name be changed because he was terrified that the play would go to germany which it eventually did it was translated into german and performed there and that the landlady would see this and think that isherwood was accusing her of being an anti-semite
2: and the thing is is like you can tell from reading it i mean like i said i think she's the only character that stays the same in both Mm -hmm. mr norris changed his trains and then goodbye to berlin he loves her oh yeah you know what i mean like he's he's very fond mm -hmm. of her like and Yeah. yeah he points out like her personality foibles um and that like She is talk about melodramatic and she will talk your ear off forever and blah, blah, blah. But like, he's clearly very affectionate towards her. So So I don't like I don't like that change.
1: There's a happy ending to this story, which is that after the play had already premiered, he did wind up going back to Germany and meeting with her, and she was delighted to see him. She uh, she gave him a clock that he had mentioned in Goodbye to Berlin. He writes about and this, doesn't he? Yeah, he does. It's in Christopher and His Kind. Yeah, I remember reading
2: that at some point. I didn't read that
1: prepping for, for us
2: recording today, but I do remember reading that, and it's yeah, so, so sweet. Oh, my gosh.
1: So, yeah, she, seemed, she seems really like a, a wonderful person, and she really epitomizes the perspective of a lot of people under totalitarian rule which is you just go along to get along you keep your head down and you Mm -hmm. live your life as best you can now when the movie comes out which i've not seen the stage play so i'm relying on secondhand accounts of what's in the stage play when the movie comes out there's a couple of things that i think we should note uh one is that isherwood the 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 character is christopher isherwood or he's named Christopher Isherwood, and he is referred to in the opening voiceover as a confirmed bachelor. Mm. Now, going back to this this sort of subtextual queerness, and we're going to talk about this a lot, especially when we get to Cabaret, even though later on he tries to force himself on Sally, she, she immediately gets onto him and he feels very ashamed of himself. Even though he's later agreeing to marry her, he's still introduced as a confirmed bachelor. And in my eyes... All of his interactions with Sally read much more comfortably or much more naturally if you assume that the character is gay. The Any sort of sexual interest he takes in Sally seems to come from a place of desperation or a place of worry or anger. And then later in the movie, when he's agreed to marry her and she starts threatening him with more babies, uh, he panics and he leaves the room. He says, mm-hmm. Daddy needs a drink. And he goes out Ugh. and he he gets drunk <laughs> um,
2: <laughs> daddy look which, what you made daddy do um. yeah
1: <laughs> so there's this weird sort of uh, footsie with isherwood's real sexuality versus what was acceptable to portray at the time uh similarly was it, was,
2: was i am yeah. a camera american or
1: british uh the movie the movie i, I think the i think the movie was british I think the movie was British. The play was on Broadway, but I think the movie was British.
2: Uh I don't know if that would just affect, I mean, being in 1950, I don't know if that would affect some of those depictions. One of the things that I was interested in with the movie, I Am a Camera, and this is moving a little bit away from what, what you were talking about with the queerness, though, as we have noted with Isherwood, these subtleties and undertones of queerness are naturally wrapped up with like the political. But... I noticed and I am a camera, as I had mentioned earlier, it seems to kind of suck this life out of it, this sort of mm-hmm. cultural malaise or dread mm-hmm. or anything like that. And when, yeah, and and the, I mean, which isn't to say that politics don't appear in it like you say, you know, Um, They do have Christopher Isherwood confronting Nazis and getting beat up. He says, well, I'm going to start walking on my own two feet. And then he sees them and starts Mm -hmm. fighting and gets beat up or whatever. But it does seem like the political discourse in I Am a Camera is a lot more expository. Mm-hmm. It's a lot more pedantic, unlike the way that it is in any of the Berlin stories that it's kind of underhanded. Yeah. That was a something I noticed about that. And I didn't know if that might have something to do with being produced in 1955 and like Cold War shit. And it's just like, well, we need to say like what we believe about politics and stuff like that or if it was just like kind of the way of the movie just
1: being kind of really i think it was van druden the 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 guy who wrote the original play okay this is again from keith garabian in the making of cabaret he's naming the things that isherwood did not like Okay, so he did not—he disliked the character of Christopher. He disliked many of the jokes. He disliked the playwright's treatment of the landlady, and he disliked most of the speeches about the persecution of Jews. And in Christopher and His Kind, Isherwood talks about this. He says that he doesn't like the preachy nature of the way that Christopher, in the movie, specifically attacks Fraulein Thurau, uh-huh. or the woman who's based on Fräulein Thurau, he, he specifically didn't like that speech because he thought it was too preachy. So I think to a large extent, the preachiness may be an artifact of the play itself, where the play was itself already pretty preachy and finger waggy, as it were.
2: Well, this leads me to one one more question or point I wanted to make. In, in watching I Am a Camera, and similarly being bored with it, thinking it doesn't have any life in it. Mm-hmm. And it actually made me rethink about Goodbye to Berlin generally, and Mr. Norris a little bit, but more Goodbye to Berlin. And that is, in Goodbye to Berlin, do you find most of the characters relatively flat
1: and or static? Oh, uh, goodness gracious. That's a very EM forster question to ask. Because oh, I um. do. I, I find them but like, yeah.
2: like I find them still sympathetic in a way, which I think like speaks to Isherwood's ability as a writer. Usually you see a flat or static and or static character. And usually they're not very sympathetic, but he has this way that like Sally Bowles doesn't have a lot of depth to her. So she's relatively flat. She's also static. She doesn't change. She's the same way. She's still sympathetic, Mm -hmm. though. Um, I think you see this with Natalia. Um, I think that you see this with Schroeder. Like, I think that you see this with a lot of his characters. They aren't very deep in terms of having a lot of emotional complexity because he's trying to create this semblance or this idea of no one's self-aware enough because they're all just trying to distract themselves from the horror around them. But like, so no one's really introspective enough to like have like a sort of depth. So they're all pretty flat. And they also seem to be really stuck in their ways. Now, what I find interesting about I Am a Camera is there also all flat and static and totally un- un- unsympathetic? Like I don't give a shit about any of you. I don't care. Like you mm-hmm. know, like like it, it completely yeah. loses. And again, like I keep returning to this phrase because I don't know how better to say it. But like it just loses the life of the book. Like it's just like it's it's just it's plot and yeah, more expository
1: and it's political commentary. Yeah, I don't know. Yeah, it. I think you're right. Although I would, for instance, argue that Mister Norris is is a relatively complex character in his sort of shifting allegiance and that sort of thing but as far
2: as the i think that he's not complex because like that shifting allegiance is always like because his allegiance is just like himself and his own survival and like okay yeah like none of that like that like doesn't change about him so like these kind of exterior manifestations of what that looks like might change i think ultimately he's pretty static because i think he pretty much stays the same the whole time untrustworthy just looking out for
1: himself. Yeah, I can see that. I can see that. But as as far as as far as in the movie itself, I do think that the characters they are flat without Isherwood's skill to make them come alive. And I say this this with all the respect in the world for Julie Harris, who is marvelous and beautiful and all of those sorts of things. But she also contributes to a trajectory that we're going to see continuing with portrayals of Sally Bowles in future versions. And partly, honestly, it's not entirely her fault. I don't think it's entirely Van Druten's fault. I think it's a matter of censorship. So at the end of the movie, Sally thinks that she's pregnant mm-hmm. and which which we'll see happening in Cabaret. Mm-hmm. And Isherwood uh, Christopher Isherwood the character agrees to marry her and then he comes in one day and she tells him whoops a diddly I'm such a silly little girl I counted my days wrong. So the abortion is eliminated because, of course, they couldn't have an abortion in a movie in 1955, and instead what we have is the idea that Sally is such a silly little goose that she can't keep track of her own monthly cycles. Right. What this does it, i think the term that people use in the real world is Flandersization. Flanderization. What this does is it takes a character who was already somewhat shallow and flighty, and it makes her even more shallow and flighty. Right. She becomes just too stupid to live. And I think that you know, again, I don't necessarily think this is Van Druten's fault. I think this is the cens- censorship of the time. What does Flanderization um, come from? Like Flanders and the it, Simpsons? From Ned Flanders. Yeah. Because really? Ned Flanders starts off as relatively, relatively complex. And then as time goes by, his sort of more prominent humorous features become more and more prominent. And all of the all of the nuance gets lost, and the depth uh, of we, him losing his wife, and you know, yeah, yeah, like all the shadow gets kind of taken away, and he becomes just a caricature. Oh of man, when he plays Stanley. In Streetcar? Do you know know what I'm talking about? Slavoy. The truth is, I have not watched The Simpsons.
2: Yeah, Mm.
1: I've watched a couple of seasons, (laughs) uh, early seasons, but that's it. But the point is that Sally Bowles becomes more extreme in her first film incarnation than she is even in the book, and she's already pretty extreme in the book. Well, I would be interested in the next chapter of
2: this discussion because I would argue that in cabaret, at least in Liza Minnelli's depiction of her, like she's a little bit more complex and nuanced than that. I think you're right. I think we should move to Cabaret. So when we start back up, I have a question that I really want to talk about in terms of these movies. And I think it will be a good transition between I am a camera and Cabaret and the idea that she is depicted as stupid or somehow like unable to take care of herself.
0: But why don't you just come out with it? You can't stand Maximilian because he's everything that you're not. He doesn't have to give English lessons for three marks an hour. He's rich, and he knows about life. He doesn't read about it in books. He's suave, and he's divinely sexy. And he really appreciates a woman.
3: Oh, screw Maximilian! I do.
2: So do I. Let's start talking about Cabaret. So uh, one thing that I noticed, like, as you were talking about you were like, you know, in these adaptations, she kind of increasingly gets treated like flightier, dumber, like just, you know, more unable to take care of herself and one thing that this led me to and these are this is in the not this is in the novella as well but it stands out to me in this idea of her inability to take care of herself which if you know me i will eat or drink almost anything but what the hell are these prairie oysters
1: <laughs> 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 i looked this up because i wasn't sure well it's, it's like what egg, egg.
2: worst sire.
1: that's it that's it? It's egg It's egg with a dash of Worcestershire sauce. I looked up a video of it. That's all you do. You do a little Worcestershire sauce, maybe a little Tabasco, and, and that's it. You just slurp you it just right drink down. it. Yeah, it's supposed to be a hangover cure. <laughs> okay. I didn't know it was supposed to be a hangover cure. Like, she's yes.
2: just always like, oh, have one of these. And I'm like, can you not cook the egg? Like, why do you have to drink the egg? I also had the impression that when she was drinking it, I thought that there was alcohol in it, too. But it's just no, egg. No, it's no just alcohol. egg and
1: Worcestershire <laughs> No, in in the movie Cabaret, I think they put some alcohol in the. No, I'm confusing that with Christopher and His Kind. In Christopher and His Kind, at one point they have spiked prairie oysters, which Ooh. is prairie oysters with liquor. What no, kind of liquor? What oyster. kind of liquor would you use in that,
2: Nathaniel? Well, you use baijo probably.
1: I just ju- just hey. do a shot of baijo in there. And, I would think uh, like
2: rum, like but like dark, like dark yeah. rum, like spiced rum, yeah. not white rum. Yeah, I don't know. Okay, that's fascinating. So I didn't know that it was like some like hangover cure, which makes a lot of sense why she's always making it then. Yeah. I thought yeah. it was just a thing of like she literally like it was like a way of depicting like she could not like cook an egg.
1: Yeah. No, I I think it's I think it's a hangover cure and she's just always always hungover, hungover because <laughs> Because she's a good-time girl. She knows how to have fun. Yeah, dude. Well, let's talk about cabaret. A little bit of background here. So, Harold Prince decides he wants to make a musical out of the Berlin stories. Who's Harold Prince? He's a Broadway theatrical producer. Okay. And he, for some reason, the rights were tied up with Van Druten. So, he had to get Van Druten's say-so or go-ahead. They make the play. It's very self-consciously not your ordinary Broadway show. The staging is somewhat abstract, and it is self-consciously trying not to be what's called a diva show, right? So a diva show is something like Hello, Dolly, right? Where you've got this big performance by a woman at the center of it, and she sings these torch songs and this sort of thing. Now, the play Cabaret, the musical, has virtually no resemblance to the play I Am a Camera or the movie I Am a Camera. In the Broadway show, the Isherwood character is an American. Okay, He is in the first run of the play. He's straight. They changed this in later versions. He has a romance with Sally Bowles. Okay. Right. The secondary story is between his landlady and a Jewish grocer who brings her fruit, like pineapples, as a way of courting her. And in the middle of the play they've agreed to get married they're having a party and then another character who's not in the movie not in the either of the movies reveals himself to be a nazi says you can't do this he's jewish and there's a lot of turmoil they sing tomorrow belongs to me and then in the next act the landlady decides that she has to go on living in germany and that she cannot do this if she's married to a jewish man so she calls off the marriage that is that subplot interesting why does he bring uh, pineapples i have no i think okay so my impression when i watched the stage play and i watched a youtube video of the 1993 revival so it's somewhat different than the original version okay my impression was that it was because he was a grocer and fruit was very expensive and so he was bringing her all this wonderful fruit so that she could have something good to eat well that's Um, i have i've
2: two things about that so one like that makes yeah. sense because fruit like his or like and pineapple in particular has historically like had this kind of like regal quality to it like that's why they loved it so much like in the south on plantations and stuff like and you wouldn't eat the pineapple like it was a centerpiece like it was a, something yeah. you displayed yeah. you know that transforms and i really want to hope that it has something about that there's got to be a connection between that Southern gentility and their obsession with pineapples. And then into in the 1950s and sixties, the pineapple becomes a, a symbol to like, basically let another couple know like you're swingers, like, Hey, we're <laughs> swingers, you're swingers. So I hope that when this play is made that secondary notion of
1: the pineapple would, uh, would have been known. I think would, would play into that. So we're looking yeah. at a couple of middle-aged German Weimar swingers. Oh, <laughs> yeah.
2: Like <laughs> it's like it's like, hey, like this Weimar decadence, it's not just reserved for these young kids. Right, right. Old, the the, the old grocers, grocers and the landladies that they, they partake. Yeah.
1: <laughs> yeah. Okay. Now when the time comes to make a movie, mm-hmm. the producers and also perhaps more importantly, Bob Fosse, the director, decide that they don't actually want to do a movie of the musical. They want to do a movie that's a more direct adaptation of Isherwood's Berlin stories. Okay. So what they do is they bring back Fritz and Natalia. Now, in the movie I Am a Camera, the subplot is about Fritz and Natalia who meet while Isherwood is teaching Natalia English. Fritz is making a move on her as a gold digger because this is what everyone in Weimar And she, because she's like an heiress. She's an heiress to the Landauer department stores. So she's she's a very rich Jewish woman. And the big twist... In I Am a Camera, which I've looked, I don't think this is in Berlin stories. Uh, I've seen people say this is a return to the original Berlin stories, but I've looked. There's some implication that Fritz might be Jewish, but he's not explicitly Jewish, and there's not a sort of explicit romance with Natalia.
2: And there's the not Berlin. that
1: sort of specific confrontation that
2: happens in Casablanca, yes. like where she's in the car um, yeah. and he's like, oh, and she's like, no, like, I can't, like, I'm Jewish and like, you're clearly in, a in, fucking in, Nazi. In,
1: in Cabaret, in Cab- you said Casablanca. Oh, my God. Is- I do that so much.
2: <laughs> like when I was telling Elizabeth, I was like, hey, we need to watch Cabaret. But I said Casablanca. I was like, I figured you wouldn't want. She's like, I, I like Casablanca. I've seen it before. I'm like, oh, you have? I was like, fuck, I meant Cabaret. Yeah, I don't know why. I, I don't yeah. know why the, the C and the A's, I guess, but no, you're right yeah. like, there, there. It isn't. And in fact, cause I went kind of looking through again and looking at my annotations and stuff. And by and large, like there's not a ton between Fritz and Natalia in general.
1: No. In fact, at the, the scene where Natalia meets Sally in the Berlin stories Isherwood specifically says, I determined not to invite Fritz. That's exactly where like, I'm at. He, he, says, he says, I had long says. meditated
2: on the I, I had long meditated the experiment of int- introducing Itali to Sally Bowles. I think I knew beforehand what the results of their meeting would be. Uh, spoiler alert. It's not good because they're That's both right. Yeah, you know. They both hate everyone. Anyways, uh, I think I knew beforehand what the results of their meeting would be. At any rate, I had the sense not to invite
1: Fritz Vendel. Yes. Now, what's, what's interesting here is that, uh, so in the book, The Berlin Stories, it's a bad meeting. But later in his life, in Christopher and His Kind, uh, Isherwood says that he actually thinks that the original of Natalia would have gotten a well, along quite well with Gene Ross, which is what you see happening. In both I Am a Camera and in Cabaret, the movie, they actually form a kind of a relationship. So the movie plays much more as a remake of I Am a Camera. It also reintroduces the millionaire who the American millionaire from the Berlin stories, Clive, shows but up in I Am a Camera. But in, in Cabaret, he's like a
2: he's like German. German baron of some yes. sort. And so he's yes. kind of and a swinger. And he's so he is kind of Kuno from mm-hmm. Mr. Norris Changes Trains.
1: Yes. That was like, uh, like
2: I noticed that in watching Cabaret. I'm like, Oh, like Mr. Norris changes trains. Isn't much in him, but I really felt like that character was, is more based on Kuno than Clive.
1: Yes, for sure. And, um, Especially the because he term- gets kind
2: of like swallowed up into like the nationalism.
1: Yes. In the way yeah, that Kuna exactly. does.
2: Yeah. But not like in, not in an outright like oh like I'm a fascist. Oh like I hate Jews way. It was like right. a, oh I have a duty to country because I am a
1: baron and I think I can control the Nazis. <laughs> right. <laughs> right. <laughs> he's he's confident that once these Nazis get rid of all the lefties in the country, that mm-hmm. he can control them. Uh. He's a he's yeah. Center. I definitely want to talk
2: about the scene with him and Brian, a.k.a. Christopher Isherwood in Cabaret yes. when they're at that beer garden.
1: Yes. Before we get to that, let's very mm-hmm. quickly do one more thing, because I've been tracing the the portrayal of the Isherwood character's sexuality through right. all of this. When they decided to make the movie, they determined that they were going to make the Isherwood character actually gay or at least bisexual so this was their determination from the beginning okay and they wrote the script with that understanding and they cast michael york as a specific attempt to get away from the stereotype of fey effete homosexuals now this is something that's very funny to me i'm just going to mention it and move on in the book on the making of Cabaret, it says that they wanted someone with the quality of a prize fighter, and they thought that Michael York had the quality of a prize fighter. Basil uh, Expedition? I, yeah. yeah. <laughs> I don't know about you, but when I think about prize fighters, I do not think about Michael York. <laughs> um Up there, like putting up his jukes and fighting. He strikes. Michael fairly... York, Logan's Run. Yes. Okay, that's my yeah. thought. Yeah. He's also John the Baptist in Franco Zeffirelli's Jesus of Nazareth, and he played oh. the Antichrist in the Omega Code. Okay, which is a fun bit of trivia for you. And then, of course, Basil Expedition. Of course, Basil Exposition. In the uh, Austin
2: Powers movies. Austin Powers
1: movies. yeah. <laughs> Pretty sure that he, was he, him. <laughs> yeah. He's he's a great... I, I like him a lot. Like, he felt that the character was underwritten when he came on. So he and Liza worked together. They improvised some dialogue. And okay. And kind of gave some uh, substance to the character. I still right. think he's fairly lightly sketched in. Mm-hmm. Uh, but again, the character is meant to be bisexual, which is something that Isherwood did not like. I think Isherwood... Isherwood may have been guilty of what on the internet today we would call bi-erasure. He didn't like the idea of bisexuality too much, although he was into the idea of fluid sexuality. So, you know, however that works out. And he thought that having the Michael York character be bisexual reduced his homosexuality to a character flaw on the level of bedwetting. This is how he describes it in Christopher and His Kind. Like peeing your Uh, bed. Like peeing your bed, yeah. So uh, just just something you can snicker at and and is kind of a personality flaw, but it's not a part of his character. Now, I find Michael York, and this is nothing against – this says nothing about Michael York himself, but I find Michael York tremendously unconvincing as a lover of Sally Bowles. I find mm-hmm. that the scene where they where he turns her down plays very naturally. It plays very realistically. And then the scene where he kisses her feels forced and mm-hmm. fake. And every time they're in a situation where they're supposed to be lovers, it feels forced and fake. Well, now, what I'm about like sure when they wake if, up in bed together? Okay. So when they wake up in bed together and he's asleep, it's Eh, whatever they could just be sleeping. It doesn't feel particularly real to me. Right. Any of it. Now you could argue that that's what the movie's doing because when he makes his move on Sally, she's at a particularly low point emotionally. It's right mm-hmm. after she failed to meet her father, or her father failed to meet her. And so you could argue that he is doing what he knows she needs in order to feel better. Yeah. Um. But it doesn't play true to the character as we see him anywhere literally anywhere else in the movie that's my read on it that's interesting
2: i mean i watched it with less attention to brian's queerness in it because i guess i i had a similar read like it's very wooden i'm thinking particularly about the scene when i think it's maximilian Ma- maximilian but the baron him and sally are dancing they're at like some event type thing yes. and then like and then Brian or Michael York walks in and kind of joins them. And it's like this weird thruple like they're dancing this is while they're
1: yeah Yeah, like it's the baron's mansion
2: yeah and it's like just very like like you said forced um it's 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 not it's not very believable i guess so i have like uh, the the couple of things i want to talk about cabaret like that leads into one of them this seems like a a natural kind of way to go is one i just want to talk about liza minnelli sally bowls like we're talking about the evolution of these presentation of characters but then i also want to talk about like the movie itself and the Kind of spectacle involved in it, and some of like the ways in which Bob Fosse brilliantly creates that tone and feeling of dread and malaise that I was arguing is absent from *I Am a Camera*. Um, it should be noted that you know uh, Bob Fosse wins Best Director Oscar for this. Liza Minnelli wins Best Actress. For Sally Bowles, Joel, Grey Joel wins best, Gray wins Best Supporting Actor for the MC, which is yeah. absolutely deserved. And also won, like, Best Cinematography, Best Art Direction, uh, Best Score. Like, it won a bunch of Oscars. And um, it was and up rightfully against tough so,
1: competition that yeah. year and it's it, up against the, the it, godfather it, right
2: yeah that the godfather is what won best picture but like i mean mm-hmm. even bob fossey won best director over coppola you know like and and watching it this was the first time i watched it i had never seen cabaret before even though like i'm a theater kid all this mm-hmm. stuff like i knew i knew the song life is a cabaret old chum come mm-hmm. to the cabaret i knew that song and i knew that in general it was kind of a queer celebrity celebratory play and had to do with a cabaret. I knew nothing mm-hmm. about its like context of Nazism. I knew nothing about like the actual like characters or anything. Like so like going into watching this was pretty fascinating to me. And one of the things after reading Isherwood is Sally Bowles and plays played yeah. by Liza Minelli. Um the
1: divine Liza
2: Minelli. The divine We're <laughs> so talking about like I'd never seen this before you, do you know what I thought of when if you would have brought up Liza Minnelli to me uh, probably Arrested Development Arrested Development yeah Yeah, yeah, Um, but like But like that's what I would have gone to And so like watching is just like Holy shit And what they do in this movie And whether this was intended Or what you're talking about Like Liza Minnelli and Michael York Like work together and improvise To like make these characters more complex Sally Bowles is so much more complex And nuanced Mm -hmm. in Cabaret Than she is in I Am a Camera Or than she she is in Goodbye to Berlin Mm -hmm. One major change Like which we can just get out the gate in the book she's a bad singer and like not a dancer and he's just like oh she just stands there like with her hands by her sides doesn't know what to do and like isn't a very good singer and she's only a singer for like what a couple weeks and like then she like you know that place closes down and she like wants to be an actress but like that's not what she does the whole time whereas like in the movie with Liza Minnelli like oh she's she's a bad singer like no she's fucking phenomenal she's amazing yeah she's amazing and she's the main attraction and like with that they were able to embed view her with a more believable level of confidence than we see in her in the book. We're in the book where she's just kind of this like as she calls herself a gold digger and like Ishua was like on the demimond of society or what the fuck ever, right? The movie is a way in which that doesn't seem as contrasted with who she is. It's like, yeah, no, like there's a reason that she is has this sort of like confidence in approaching the world because she's fucking awesome on the stage. The last thing I was just gonna say, she also seems more self-aware of the ways
1: in which she kind of sucks.
2: Um, she seems more self-aware of them in Cabaret than she does in the book.
1: Yeah, particularly in the scene right at the end after she's had the abortion and she like lists off all of her negative traits, which in a way she's parroting back what she thinks that Brian thinks about her. But it also shows a certain level of self-awareness about where she is as a person and what she can deal with. and. Among the things that she, with which she cannot deal is an infant. And so she's made this choice because she knows that she would not be a successful mother or Cambridge wife. Right. And so she makes this choice. One of the things that the Keith Garabian book points out is that when Prince made the stage play, he was very much consciously not making a diva musical. When you cast Liza Minnelli as <laughs> Sally Bowles, it becomes a diva musical. the example that i keep thinking about is in the movie version of streetcar named desire uh, versus the stage version so in the stage version of streetcar named desire even when marlon brando was playing it stanley was not the main draw you've got a whole collection of characters and the audience in the audience can kind of look and say, okay, I want to focus on Blanche, I want to focus on Stanley, I want to focus, right? When they made the movie, and this is something that I think Tennessee Williams observed uh, somewhere, the entire story warped itself around Marlon Brando, because he was the person that the camera loved the most. He had the most star power of Mm -hmm. anyone in the cast, and the entire movie warped itself around him. I think something comparable happens with cabaret. Like if yes. you watch stage productions of cabaret, the real star character, the star turn, the one that if you're a theater kid you want to be doing, is the MC. Oh, right? oh yeah. You want to be. Well, up that's here not lost it. in the movie either. It's not totally lost because it's got Joel Grey there, and he's phenomenal. 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 Um, like oh my god. Amazing. But when you get uh, when you get Sally Bowles played by Liza Minnelli immediately the entire movie becomes about Liza Minnelli mm-hmm. because she is radiant she controls the screen every second she's on controls it she when she sings mine hair which was a song that was written for the movie it's not from the stage play when she sings mine hair she is sexy and she is Beautiful and she is totally in control. Which is uh, mine here. Is that the maybe this time? No, no. It's the one where she's on the chair. Okay. Da, 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 da. Yeah, that okay. was written for the movie. Maybe this time was also written for the movie. That song is where it's just
2: like, oh my God. And that yeah. it, it's it's so amazingly done. And then like when it backs up and like it's like an empty bar, right? Yeah. Like there's no one there.
1: And it's just like see that's That's down to Fosse. He called in. So the people who wrote the lyrics and music for the stage play, John Kander and Fred Ebb, uh, they were brought in to write additional songs for the movie. The the movie only keeps five of the songs from the stage play. And then one of the ones that was written for the movie was Maybe This Time. And Fosse called them in and he basically gave them the lyric. He said, I want the song to say this. And then they wrote it. And And it's it's stunning. It's, I mean, that that like Oscar, right there. Like, it's so good. It's so good that they even, I think, some stage productions use that song still. They'll bring it in. In well, they certainly do in Shit's Creek.
2: Yeah, Stevie nails it. Oh, Stevie, Shit's Creek. Like, like what I love about it is it's it's in in the sort of narrative arc of Shit's Creek. This is where Stevie kind of realizes. The sort of emptiness that she has in Shit's Creek and the song performing the song it makes her recognize that and eventually like go seize the day or Carpe Diem or what the fuck ever. Whereas like Sally Bowles in the play, like it's more of a song of desperation or reinforcement. Mm. It's a song of like, yeah. no, for real, like maybe this time. Um, and the fact that it's on an empty audience, I think makes it like that whole fucking performance and scene so much more powerful. But this brings me to a question. So so like and this and this is definitely ties back to the play. So it's a musical. Mm-hmm. But you you said, like, oh, they want to make a different kind of musical. Or they didn't want a diva musical. One other thing they didn't want and didn't do is like the music is diegetic in it, right? Yeah. In that like it is, I think there I think in the movie, like at least there's there might be one song where it's like kind of sung on spur of the moment. But otherwise, it's not like typical musical in the way of like, right. oh, I have all these feelings and I'm gonna sing a song about it now. The songs are all like performed in the movie or performed in the play. I don't know.
1: Like I said, I, I don't know about if that's true in the play as it's, well. It's fossy. It's all fossy. in the play. There are songs where a character will just start singing. This is what I'm thinking about right now for all the, you know, they were saying it was a transformative work of Broadway theater and all that sort of thing. It's very traditional in some ways. Okay, And so Fossey comes along and he says, no, I don't want to do that. I don't want to have the waiters coming out and dancing and singing about how wonderful it is to work here. I want to do everything (laughs) as if it were in the movie. And you're right. The only time that that doesn't happen is with the performance of Tomorrow Belongs to Me, yeah, which takes place in the beer garden. And apparently Fossey later regretted that. He wished he hadn't included that <laughs> because for him it broke what he was doing, which was Wait using the musical performances to comment on the uh, story. I thought that that was also diegetic, though. Tomorrow it Belongs is. It's, to Me. It's, yeah, it's diegetic in that it's performed by characters there, and they're all aware that they're singing. Yes, it's not part of the cabaret conceit. I guess is the point. okay, Um, okay. Where everything else is performed in the cabaret and it's part of the cabaret music. Tomorrow Belongs to Me is not. And it is kind of of like,
2: and it is like just watching it, like it's kind of a sharp departure in terms of the scene. I mean, what's interesting is the opening of the scene. I mean, just think about the way that the scene contrasts with the cabaret throughout. It's outside, Mm -hmm. it's during the day. It is bavarian polka right. instead of jazz right so like mm-hmm. this very traditional german music it's just like there's all this and it's a public space a beer garden rather than like a Than a kind of hidden away private there's there's a way in which that scene emphasizes which only gets reinforced in the end of the movie at the very end when we see all the nazis in the cabaret when they weren't allowed there before but it's it's a way that emphasizes how the nazis or fascism becomes like
1: seeps into public spaces Mm -hmm. yes i think this is a good point where we can move to the the question about political violence and entertainment actually.
2: Well, one thing I wanted to point out with that in terms of cabaret but in terms of like the political violence in it elizabeth pointed this out to me for listeners elizabeth is my dear wife and my wonderful friend nathaniel here introduced us for which i will forever be grateful but we'll, but like so and she watches a lot of these movies with me um and and we watched cabaret together and one of the things she pointed out i think i noticed but didn't like put my finger on was the way in which the movie stops like literally the camera stops and creates stills when there is mm-hmm. political violence when they're driving in there's that murder and it has the bag over that guy's head and it's all bloody mm-hmm. um the end that ends on a still of these nazis in the cabaret i think mm-hmm. that goes back to i am a camera that kind of quote of or idea of i am a camera like it literally becomes a still camera when it yeah. has these things not to mention the other kind of like hard cuts that will have in like they'll be a like a song being performed and then there's like a fucking three second hard cut of just like somebody being stomped on. Right. Yes. Um, Yes. But it is a way that I think what this movie so brilliantly does is show how that political violence happens and and is kind of, Mm -hmm. Unnoticed, or if not unnoticed, just not cared about, or like it being indifferent to. Yeah, which is how this this movie was kind of chilling to watch in twenty twenty two. Yeah,
1: for sure. I think sort of a a very traditional reading of this movie would be that the people inside the Kit Kat Club are hiding. Mm-hmm. Uh, you, you begin you begin with the, the very opening song. He says, so life is disappointing. In here, everything is beautiful. The girls are beautiful. Even the orchestra is beautiful, right? right. And so the Kit Kat Club becomes a space where people go to try to escape from not only the, the economic depression outside, uh, which is sort of a subtext through all of this, but also the political violence, going on but as the musical goes on the cabaret numbers themselves become more and more politically compromised and violent right and which i mean they've got mud wrestling in the very beginning so they're already kind of violent but also the mc character becomes more and more obviously a demonic figure and i think that in the movie particularly he's he's very much demonic his his sort of doll-like face the way he moves the way he grins and licks his lips is meant to be terrifying one of the things that also goes in here yeah just
2: quickly it opens and begins with him looking through this kind of funhouse mirror type thing and of course in the end of it the still that we have like when the credits roll it's like through this funhouse mirror and we see that there's a bunch of nazis in the audience but before it gets there and in the intro like when we first see it like it's the MC looking through it. And at the end, before it gets to being the fun house mirror, kind of reflecting the audience, it is the MC looking into it. Yes. After his last song, um, where he's just this like, Auf Zan," and then bows, kisses uh-huh. his cane, and just walks out. And it's this walks way, out. like, as you're talking about him being a sort of demonic figure, there's a way in which he can just kind of play between... The different, like on the outside and between the kind of political violence that's going on. Although, of mm-hmm. course, the subtext to that that we know as audiences is like, dude, the Nazis are gonna murder you. Like you're, yeah. you're, you perform in drag.
1: Like you are, you're gonna be murdered by the Nazis. Yep. And that's made explicit in the 1993 san Mendes restaging with Alan Cumming, where the MC actually comes out on stage. It's Alan Play the MC. Yes. Oh my god, and I need to watch that. Okay. At the, at the very end, he comes out and he's dressed in concentration camp garb and he's wearing a yellow star and a pink triangle. And that's the end of the play in the Sam Mendes staging. Okay. So yeah, that's that's very explicit there. One of the things that's interesting to me about the the sort of MC's characterization is that he's morally the the most difficult character to get a handle on because on the one hand he is a sort of dionysian spirit running right. through this whole whole thing right uh, he, he is the figure that enjoys you know sex more than anyone in the play the mc loves sex but it's often shot through with violence it's often shot through with exploitation. There's a sort of indication that he is exploiting his various cabaret girls. Yeah. It's also shot through with fascism, for sure. There's a scene where he's, and I think this is one of the things that's intercut with someone being beaten. He is playing a sort of satirical version of a nazi soldier while actual nazis are beating people up yep and there's also anti-semitism uh the song uh if you could see her through my eyes where he's singing to a uh, another dancer in a gorilla costume and the joke is just see her through my eyes she wouldn't look jewish at all so Oof. the audience is watching the whole time laughing along going oh this is funny he's in love with a gorilla and then he gets to the end and it's got an arguably anti-semitic stinger where the joke is oh no it's not that she's a gorilla that's fine but she's jewish right, right? now where this gets complicated for me is i think that in both cases you could make a case that the song is performing a satire he's making fun of the nazis he's not on their side. He's making fun of Mm anti-Semitism, right? But this puts me in mind of Kurt Vonnegut's quote about uh, writers protesting the Vietnam War. I don't remember the exact quote, but he says that all these writers protested the Vietnam War, and it had absolutely no effect on the Vietnam War. So there's the question of whether satire actually works and then there's also the question of whether satire can be infected by the thing it's satirizing and i think that that see that latter
2: that latter implication is like what i think is happening more here and what what i think happens a lot in kind of culture uh mass culture generally with things um what comes to my mind immediately is like wolf of wall street uh Mm -hmm. which is about like this terrible person and it's satirizing this whole Fucking I mean he fucking made his fortune on penny stocks, right? Like it's right. just satire, and but it's just like people walked away like, oh my god, Jordan, what's his name, or whatever? Like, that's so awesome. Like, I want to live that life of decadence.
1: Fight Club is the same way, right? Yeah. Oh like, satir- my god, Fight and Club the sort is of toxic masculinity that came satire out of-, of toxic masculinity, and people didn't read it as a satire. Right.
2: <laughs> and so, like, there's the danger of doing that, and like so in the world of cabaret if the MC is satirizing in this way like he's running the risk of no people aren't reading it as satire they're reading reading it it as like they're reading as like this is like what you are endorsing or or trying to celebrate exactly One of the things about the MC and I I wanted to touch on this quick. I know we're running out of time. As I watched it and you know me like part of this comes to comes from like my own sort of research that I do myself. But with the MC and with the cabaret specifically in the movie, it's kind of a freak show. Oh yeah. What I think that is really unique about it and I've ne- I I I haven't thought about it this or schematized it in any kind of way. But you know, like I do a lot of research like with freak shows and like their cultural multiplication, I guess. The cabaret functions in the same way, only it emphasizes desire more than fear and of course desire and fear are like just two sides of the same coin like desire like tells us what fear your fears are and your fears tells us what your desires are but like with the freak show it emphasizes the fear um being somehow like unhuman or like oh like you're not fully human you're part animal or you're not fully human because you don't have limbs or some shit, right like freak shows are ways of exhibiting human beings to kind of fulfill the desires of those who look at them, their own basic self-concept of normalcy. And Cabaret seems to, at least the Cabaret in the movie Cabaret, seems to be functioning in a very similar way, only it's trying to remove fear from the equation Mm. and only emphasize desire. And by only emphasizing desire, it only actually um, subtly reflects these fears that, like, kind of you're talking about with the anti-Semitism involved, with, like, the the ways that like uh, this is exploitative, a lot of those things. But I, I, I feel like in watching Cabaret, I had
1: this kind of, this is just like an inverted freak show. Elizabeth made the point about uh, still shots in terms of violence. The other place where that occurs is in the very introduction of the Cabaret. I forget who it was I saw making this point, but you don't really see the audience in the Cabaret enjoying the show. Unless it's the mud rest. Right. Otherwise, at the very beginning, you get a bunch of very still shots of people sitting there and staring with this sort of listless affect. And then at other points, of course, the cabaret is empty. So this idea of spectatorship and of watching Desire performed on stage as a form of freak show may tie into that as well
2: you know what's fucking interesting about that and i made this note is like going back to the beer garden and tomorrow belongs to me the audience stands up and starts
1: participating most of them most of them but then yeah, we see the that there's man this part- shaking his head
2: well yeah there is right <laughs> but like that unlike at the cabaret where it's Mm -hmm. this audience we're sure like in some of the sequence there's participation in terms of like the MC might joke around with an audience member but not in this way of like the audience stands up and like joins the production you know what i mean and so the fact that we we see that with tomorrow belongs to me uh, a song about like kind of fascist fantasies and started Mm -hmm. for for audiences that haven't seen this like started being sung by a a Nazi youth Um, and it starts out like with his kind of boyish face and then the camera just moves down and then we see his fucking swastika armband and we see the audience like stand up and participate with it and I feel like that has to do with kind of I know this is a common reading of the movie and certainly I would agree with this in the books in general but the ways in which we want to like fucking look away from uh, fascism or look away from political violence through these distractions Distractive means, and in these distractive means are kind of inherently passive in that they're distracting—that's something for you to look at, but not participate yeah. in. While for others, that sort of political violence or political rhetoric is actually able to get more of an audience and engage people because they are able to participate in
1: it and feel like they're part of it. It's a way of harnessing perverse desire, right? We could we could say that the cabaret is ineffective at harnessing perversity for whatever reason but nazism does effectively harness perversity there's something perverse about particularly old people like in this like not to say bad things about old people i'm not young myself but (laughs) but particularly in the beer garden scene where you see all of these older people standing up and singing tomorrow belongs to me and it's like well no it doesn't tomorrow belongs maybe to this nazi kid up here singing but You've had your tomorrow. It's your. It's today. But they're able to sort of harness their sort of. I wish I were enough of a Lacanian to use the word jouissance and and sound <laughs> convincing. Uh, but it harnesses all of their sort of excess perversity and excess desire, and it ties it to this image of the beautiful youth promising tomorrow whereas right. what you get in the cabaret is you get perverse desire you get excessive desire but it's all broken down it's all no longer it, it doesn't have the uh, political effect it it's trying. It it's try it's trying
2: to be divorced from politics it's a yeah. distraction from them yes when i when i was talking about the sort of morphology from the book like through the different adaptations than into Cabaret even though Cabaret is probably the furthest from the book in terms of plot I find it the most accurate in terms of tone in the way that it creates this sense this feeling what I think Raymond Williams would call a feeling of uh, a structure of feeling like it creates like this like just foreboding in it that is certainly there in the book and rereading the book and then watching Cabaret I was really struck with its continued relevance and it's perhaps not just continued but high relevance for our contemporary moment
1: literally days before we record this a school took mouse off the list of reading for eighth graders effectively banned it from the school nominally on the idea that the kids could not handle the word damn and mouse nudity but really like no one believes that I don't think even the people who did it believe it (laughs) no like talk about a bad faith argument Mm -hmm. like yeah and we just I mean
2: it was completely in bad faith like we know like what this was and they can talk about it in terms of discomfort because that's how they would phrase it well it makes kids uncomfortable well fucking the holocaust should make you uncomfortable yes. the rise of fascism in these books should make you uncomfortable yes that's the yeah, point because I yeah mean, because that's, so, like, that's not the-, the sole point but like you know what i mean like that's that's yeah. that's part of it
1: well one of the things that isherwood makes a point of in both the berlin stories and christopher and his kind is that at the time that the nazis were rising to power they were looked on as a fringe group they right. were looked on as being sort of ruffians and you know far right extremists that could never actually hold power and if they did get power they wouldn't know what to do with it there's even a moment
2: in <laughs> mr norris changes trains cuz i think it's like in 29 it's like before it's before and actually like the left like wins these elections and i don't remember if it's auto or who who would it no not because oh, autos i in. think i have this quote um, yeah. but he's just like hey like bradshaw like we won like we've squashed them basically it's all smooth sailing from here mm-hmm. and it's just like obviously by the time this book is published and you're reading it, it's just like yeah n- no okay so let me
1: let me read this quote from yeah Mr. Norris Changes Trains. This is from the leader of the, I think, the communist cell. Is it Brainard? Uh, I don't remember his name, to be honest. So he says... This outlook, the idea that Nazis can't be converted, this outlook is quite false. The Nazi of today can be the communist of tomorrow. When they have seen their leader's program has brought them, they may not be so very difficult to convince. I wish all opposition could thus be overcome. There are others you see who will not listen to such arguments. There's a feeling in the Berlin stories among the sort of leftward leaning peoples that Nazis just need to be talked out of being Nazis by being given good material historical reasons why they're wrong. (laughs) And that if you could just implement the right leftist policies in Berlin, that the Nazis will immediately understand, oh, wow, these policies are better for me, and therefore I am going to now cease to be a Nazi right this is something that's endemic and sort of left conversations today where where we say things like oh yeah well if people could just understand that left-wing policies are better for them and better for their children they're going to be left-wing we we just need We just need Bernie Sanders to explain it to them and they'll understand and it'll be fine. What this neglects, and I think this is something that Isherwood understands, and this is something that I think Cabaret certainly understands, is that there is a sexual energy to Nazism. There is an element of pleasure there that having the right policies that benefit you doesn't have. Violence has a sexual pleasure to it. This is something even Christopher admits, Isherwood admits in his book, Christopher and its Kind, right? Right. Violence has a sexual pleasure to it. Being told that you are the superior race has a sexual pleasure to it. And I think one of the failures of the more politically leftward people in the Berlin stories is that they do not understand that they have to harness that perverse desire Mm. for politically fruitful ends. I think that's certainly something that Cabaret can show is that the… Again, the cabaret fails because it doesn't harness this perverse desire for any sort of fruitful end. It just sort of dissipates it.
2: It it does it for its own end.
1: Yeah, and so then it becomes a tool of people who are willing to harness that sense for their own. Right. No, for real. I think that makes a lot of sense.
2: And I mean, the other thing, obviously in reading this right now and the sort of, and watching this right now and the sort of discomfort it provides is indifference is also not an option and i think in all of the berlin stories and in cabaret it shows the kind of the danger of pretending that that historical context around you does not exist yes and looking for pure distraction from it and i find that really relevant to today as well the way in which we see kind of rising violent political discourse i see it in like some of my Leftist groups as well. And I think that this is something that Isherwood points out in especially Mr. Norris Changes Trains is like, we're all capable of violence. And that's also not a viable option
1: for him, at least. Yes. Although you'll never be able to take away someone punching Richard Spencer and running away from me. (laughs) I will always treasure that moment. Uh, I okay, think that's so the we're,
2: complexity we're... of it, right? That's what he—that's yeah, what yeah. he's fucking pointing out. Like, as I agree with you,
0: aren't you ever going to stop deluding yourself, mm? handling Max, behaving like some ludicrous little underage femme fatale? You're—you're you're about as fatal as an after-dinner mint. Oh. <laughs> Well, darling, we all know about your vast experiences with Leif Baum. Vital, or otherwise.
1: Uh, so we're coming up on the end of our of our time together. Let's talk a little bit about the legacy of Cabaret. Okay. Uh, you watched the Shit's Creek segments. Mm-hmm. What What's your general feel on how they treat Cabaret? Um, wonderfully.
2: I mean, I'm also, you know, I love Schitt's Creek and it's so wholesome, but they do cabaret in this very wholesome way. It's a time where Moira, you know, also like while wanting to be the center of the show recognizes that she's not even though um when they actually get to the performance of it and stevie disappears for a while she's like in costume ready to go but like so yeah. like it, it it ties in with moira's kind of confrontation with like she can't be the sally Bowles anymore one of the things i really love in the subplot of putting cabaret together in Shit's Creek is one of the episodes that happens in there is Patrick's birthday. And mm-hmm. when they're going to be putting together a surprise birthday party for him and they invite his parents and then Johnny, Johnny Rose accidentally, well, he doesn't do it on accident, but he didn't know that they didn't know that Patrick and David were in yeah. a relationship together and so like and meanwhile this is when he is like rehearsing and preparing to be the MC so like you have this feeling like he's also kind of like digging into some sort of like queer roots and like it confronts it like with his parents and they're like we're not upset that you're gay we're upset you didn't tell us like blah 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 and then finally of course with the well okay when Stevie and Patrick are practicing money together is fantastic And then finally, when we actually see the performance of Cabaret, it's primarily what we see from it. Because we've seen like little pieces of it throughout. Is Stevie performing maybe this time? And it's just like... She starts out really demure and like, and then just like leans into it. And by the end of it, it's just like, oh, Stevie, I didn't know you had this in you. And it's a really, I mean, as Shit's Creek does with everything, it's really wholesome. I really like the way in which it incorporates uh, Cabaret. And I think it like, yeah, interacts with some of the other themes that they're doing in the show at that time very well.
1: Okay, cool. Um, I... Let's see, I, I wanted to mention a couple of things as well, uh, one of which is that over time, the the show has gotten more queer and more sexual as it's gone by. So when they revived the, move, the play in the 1980s with Joel Grey again, uh, Prince was again directing basically the same set. But they leaned in a little bit more into the protagonist being bisexual or sexually fluid. When Sam Mendes made the 1993 version with Alan Cumming, everyone's basically bisexual. It's just a sexual extravaganza. Um, I I think the power of Alan Cumming compelled them uh, because (laughs) he's a beautiful man. And he was especially a beautiful man in 1993 when he was doing this. This performance, I think, has to some extent eclipsed the original Broadway version in terms of its influence. I spent a whole evening this week looking at different performances of Cabaret on YouTube. Almost all of them have some variation of Alan Cummings' costume. Okay. And almost all of them... If they don't, they're imitating his vocalizations. Uh, So in Joel Gray, you know who goes, happy to see you, da-da-da-da-da, right? Alan Cumming yells you, happy to see you, like that. And pretty much every performance I could find post-1993 does that. So it's a tremendously influential version. The Cummings performance is on YouTube. There's two versions that you can find. One of them has Emma Stone as, uh, Sally and, uh, her performance of cabaret is actually quite good. Uh, with song. Alan Cummings. Yeah. Yeah. From 2015, he reprised the role. Oh, wow. Okay. Uh, one thing that was unexpected to me was the, the large number of high school performances I found. Uh, there are a lot of high schools that apparently put on cabaret. Huh. And so if you're good. curious, good for them. And you have a yeah, yeah. It's that, and with a minimum of boulderization too. Like they'll change some of the jokes around in the opening segment and that sort of thing. But for the most part, and and the costumes aren't nearly as sexual as in right. the movie yeah, or right. Mendes' version. But you know, if you if you have a a high tolerance for uh, teenagers making jokes about virginity and singing <laughs> "Tomorrow Belongs to Me." then it's something worth checking out. Uh, One other thing, and this is not from me, this is, again, from Garabian. uh, The movie itself had a huge influence on movie musicals going forward, particularly Moulin Rouge and Chicago, both of which apparently uh, borrow quite a bit of its style. I can definitely see that for both of them. Um, let's see here. In twenty eleven there was a movie version of Christopher and his kind. We've talked about that already. I will mention this. In nineteen ninety-eight, someone named Hilary Bailey wrote a book called After the Cabaret, which is about Sally Bowles and what she did after she left Berlin. It's on Amazon for fifteen dollars in Kindle edition. I did not I did not buy it. But it is a thing that exists in this world, and I figured we should mention it. Okay, so that's the end of our uh, fairly lengthy discussion (laughs) of Isherwood and uh, (laughs) Cabaret. Yeah, and oh. the, the the crazy thing,
2: like we might have to do some point on, like maybe an anniversary episode or something, is return to it, because there's still a lot yeah. I want to say.
1: There, there's still so much that can be said about this, and we we <laughs> barely scratched the surface. Uh, what before we go, what what's something you've been enjoying that's not related to Weimar Germany? Uh,
2: I've 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 read a lot of new. Things
1: to me lately.
2: I'm going to go with two things. One, Ocean Vong's On Earth, We're Briefly Gorgeous. Ocean Vong is a poet, Vietnamese American poet. Unearth were briefly gorgeous is his first novel, but it reads like lyricism and it will fucking wreck you. Beautiful. And then for a more lighthearted thing that I've been reading is I've been really enjoying the current run of Daredevil by Chip Zdarsky, okay. and and it's gone to so Matt Murdock has been in jail because you know he like has these values of justice. He's like, no, I need to serve my term because I did kill this person. Um, he kind of has like you know a, a Batman. Rule like you don't kill people type thing and he does and you know Murdoch's a lawyer and he turns himself in but as he's in prison he gets to be Daredevil the whole time so he has a mask the whole time so no one knows who he is oh, anyways Electra becomes Daredevil and you know Electra loves to kill people Um and so like it becomes like <laughs> Daredevil the woman without fear and it's it's been really enjoyable so that's like yeah capital L literature and then just like other things I've been enjoying
1: I'm gonna recommend a TV series that I've been rewatching. <laughs> Okay. (laughs) Uh, So this is actually marginally related because Patrick McGowan, uh, who's the actor in this TV series has a small role in I am a camera. Uh, If you remember the scene where they're uh, having the party and they're putting the uh, Isherwood character through all these hilarious physical routines. Yeah. uh, One very stern German doctor comes in to plunge him in water baths. Uh, That is, German Doctor is played by Patrick McGowan. Now, Patrick McGowan was an actor in the 1960s, uh, 50s, and 60s, and he was in a TV series called Secret Agent. Now, that's not what I'm going to recommend. I'm going to recommend his follow-up series from 1967 called The Prisoner. Uh, (laughs) You knew this was coming, didn't you? (laughs) I did. (laughs) (laughs) uh, (laughs) the prisoner is about a, a secret agent he resigns and then he's abducted and he wakes up in a mysterious village doesn't know where he is and the people in charge are trying to find out why he resigned they demand information and so the entire 17 episode tv series is about the individual trying to keep his identity in a totalitarian situation where the authorities are using culture, they're using force, and they're using persuasion to try to convince him to give up his identity and join in with them. So it's somewhat tangentially related to the concerns of the Berlin stories and also to contemporary concerns. So, I think that that might be a a worthwhile thing to. What's that streaming? Uh, It's on Amazon. Okay. I believe. Okay. Yeah.
2: And it's the, which I, I saw that there was a, they remade it. Like,
1: so which version are you talking about? I'm talking about the nineteen sixty-seven version. I've not been able to really get into the AMC remake. Oh, according to Internet Movie Database, you can watch The Prisoner for free on IMDB TV. Oh, perfect. Yeah. So that
2: you can watch that on different things and then just has commercials. So so. wonderful. All right. Well, look forward to many more fascinating conversations. Do we have Breakfast at Tiffany's next month? Breakfast at Tiffany's. Okay, this will be yeah, this will be fascinating. This will be awesome to move from uh, South. Poles to Holly, holly Golightly for uh, sure. I'm looking forward to that. Okay. Absolutely. Well, all right. Well, I hope you all enjoyed. We'll see you soon.
0: That's all for today. Thank you for joining us. Hope you'll join us again next time. Meantime, you can follow us on social media. We are at Podcast on Twitter. On Instagram, we are at Podcast. Or you can email us at library at gmail.com Our cover art is designed by Kit. You can find them on Instagram at designedbykit and our music is Rhapsody in Blue, which you can find freely available on the internet archive. Thanks so much, y'all. Hope to see you again next time at the Projectionist Lending Library.